Let's give attention to God's word here. Uh, one of the things Isaiah tells us is this is the person that God looks to, the person who humbles himself and trembles at his word. And so we're now coming to be in the presence of God through the word of God. Let us listen with open hearts and open minds. In 1 John uh, 1, uh, verse 5 through 2, 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So one of the fun things about interviewing the latest group of people who just joined this morning was uh, getting to know them. So I had a challenge when I first started the uh, uh, with three of them, and we met, um, we met separately, but uh, on Thursday morning, I was playing at Fresh Pond early with one of our members, and we were walking down the first fairway, and I said, and there was an animal that walked across the fairway right in front of us, and, um, and what do you think, which animal was it? Now, Miss Russell, who couldn't hold back, you know, I was asking the kids, but Dana had to speak up, said, was it a skunk? <laughs> no, it wasn't a skunk. Uh, and then uh, Abe said, it was a coyote, wasn't it? And I go, yeah. I mean, how did you know that? And he said, well, there's a sign at Fresh Pond to not let your little dogs, you know, get too far from you because there are coyotes. And this coyote walked right in front of us like he owned the golf course. But it was really funny. Now, another story I'm going to tell about Abe real quick is that uh, I've let, when I have people join the church, it's always a setup because I want them to know my favorite dessert. Uh, but I always say, if Valerie and I were to invite you over to our house and we were going to make you your favorite dessert, uh, what would you like to have? And of course, in the group of children that just joined, we had brownies. Uh, Miss Dana loves pound cake. She again jumped in. I think I might probably ask her, but um, she loves pound cake. And then we, uh, there was some other apple pie. Miriam was apple pie. And then it gets to Abe and, I, and say, Abe, what's your favorite? What, what can I make for you? And he says, cotton candy. <laughs> so if any of you have a cotton candy machine that I can borrow when we invite the pours over, I'd love to borrow. But it was just so much fun getting to know the kids. So the word for the kids this morning, though, is the word goat, okay? Uh, some of you already know this, but most of the adults here know goat is an acronym for the greatest of all time, the greatest of all time. And as I get ready to start the sermon, I'm going to talk about a goat uh, for basketball. 
I'll talk about him, but the idea is the greatest of all time. And it stands for, you know, the greatest of all, O, A, all time. And so we talk about it in sports. Um, but I want you to think with me now that the acronyms that we could build around who Jesus is for us, particularly as we look at him uh, as uh, our advocate this morning, um, that he is majestic and he's beautiful. And there are all these things that we could do to create a word that would be an acrostic, if you will, of who he is for us. And I'll talk more about that in the sermon. But here's your word. Hang on to the word goat. It's going to come up uh, more than once here in the message this morning. So um, uh, a few years ago, it was actually quite a few years ago, maybe 10 maybe longer than that, <clears throat> our son Luke, uh, who went to the University of Virginia, go Wahoos, uh, he went to the University of Virginia undergrad, um, and then he did a couple other things, and then finally called me up and said, hey dad, I now know what I'm supposed to be, and I said, well, what's that? He said, I'm supposed to be a doctor, and I go, really? So that meant he had to go back and take, uh, spend a year in uh, school, taking physics, chemistry, and biology, I did that at Bryn Mawr, which is where he would meet his wife, Bridget, and they're married and have three kids right now. And that's where Valerie is right now. Some of you are going, where's Valerie? Is everything okay? So just to reassure you, we put Valerie on the plane yesterday so she wouldn't miss her flight today because she's helping out Luke and Bridget with their three small children this week for childcare. Um, so he says, yeah, I, you know, I want to... Um, I want to go to medical school and I want to spend that year. And he thought it all through. He and Bridget got into Brown. They went to medical school there. And then when he finished at Brown, uh, he uh, started visiting different hospitals for his residency. Now, some of you know, not all of you know, that I am from North Carolina. I was raised at Tar Heel. Uh, I bleed Carolina blue. My dad went there. I'm actually wearing my dad's ring. I wear this every once in a while to remind me of his love for him while I'm preaching. But my dad played football at the University of North Carolina and all this stuff. So I just, I was brainwashed. I only applied to one university when I went, Chapel Hill. Okay, so I went there. So Luke calls me up and said, hey dad, I'm interviewing at Duke Hospital, which for Carolina fans is like Mordor. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, say you're going to do that. And he says, guess what dad, I'm here and they're having grand, grand rounds tomorrow. They're having grand rounds tomorrow, which means everybody who's anybody in the hospital gets up really early and shows up at the hospital to update or hear people speak on this or that. And he says, guess what, Dad? Coach K, Coach Krzyzewski, is speaking at Grand Rounds. And I go, wow, I would love to be there with you. Now, as much as I don't like Duke, okay, I have tremendous respect for Coach K, and I really like him a lot as a person. Um, and I thought, man, I'd love to be there. So I've set that up. So Luke gets up early in the morning. He didn't have to go, but like me, you want to hear, I mean, one of, the, one of the goats of all time, greatest coaches of all time, um, talk. So here's how Coach K introduces his talk. He stands up and he says to everybody there, and this is the best and the brightest, the surgeons, the doctors, the administrators. Actually, one of my college roommate is the head of Duke uh, Medical Complex now, so Bill Fulkerson is an amazing guy. He says to everybody there, if you want to be your very best, you need a coach. 
Um, you need a coach. And then he tells this story of when he was coaching the Olympics and Michael Jordan, a goat, the greatest of all time, uh, was on the team. He said they would joke a lot about Duke Carolina stuff. Uh, and at some point, Michael came over to Coach K. Now, Michael had already won some NBA championships. He was MVP in the league, MVP in the uh, finals. And he comes up to Coach K and he says, I want you to teach me how to be a better defender. And Coach K says, I was shocked. Here's Michael Jordan. I mean, he's already way beyond even the pinnacle of success. He's up in the stratosphere of accomplishment. And he's saying, Coach K, I want you to teach me how to play defense. And Coach K says, Michael and I started doing one-on-one -on -one practices together where I taught him how to play a better style and form of defense. Now, he shared that illustration for a couple of things, because a lot of people at Grand Rounds are already well-accomplished, successful people. But he's saying to them, you need a coach if you want to get better. You need someone to help you uh, understand how to take it to the next level. And so, uh, guess what happens the next year? After the NBA season, the most valuable defensive player in the league was Michael Jordan. That's the one award he hadn't won. Um, this morning, when we look at the text, and we're tying it into Matthew 11, um, 28 through 30, where Jesus says, come and take my yoke. Come and learn from me. Let me teach you. As we all need a Savior, we all need a shepherd. What we're going to see this morning is we all need an advocate. We need someone who can speak to us, for us, in the throne room of heaven and before all that we cannot see and witness to the fact that he is with us and he's for us. We all need an advocate. Uh, when we look here in 1 John, and we're going to spend a couple weeks on this uh, idea of Jesus being our advocate because it's so powerful and so rich. Um, in the book that we're going through, Gentle and Lowly, it's the first chapter. I've got probably more underlined, circled, big exclamation points, wow, written in the column, making notes. It is so, so good, and it has helped me immensely. And I hope as we look at this text, it's going to encourage you that the gospel is so much bigger and greater than we know. But to get there and to understand it, we need an advocate. We need someone who speaks to us, for us, and understands the worst about us and still loves us because of what he's done for us. Now in 1 John 2, verse 1, this is really cool. If you love studying the Bible, it, uh, John, who is the Apostle John, who was so close to Jesus, had sat and heard him teach many times, starts off this way. And he's speaking to the church, the greater church there in Asia Minor, He's probably at the end of his life. He might be 75, 80. He might be as old as 90 when he's writing these things. And he speaks to the people in the church and says, my little children. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're in an environment wherever you are and you're addressed as a little child, does that sound inviting to you or indicting? Does that sound like he's, he's putting me down? Now, when you go back to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, we looked at the broader context, and Jesus is praying before he says, come to me. He says, I thank you, Father, that you've chosen to reveal these things to little children. You've chosen to reveal these things to little children. 
And it's kind of a clue when you look at Matthew 11 and tie it into here, that John's picking up what Jesus said, only people with childlike hearts really understand what I'm saying. And this morning, if you're struggling with understanding what God is doing in your life and what He wants to do in your life, let me encourage you that Jesus wants to invite you to come to Him with your real need just the same way you would if you were a little child. And in this letter, He says, my little children, as an invitation. Notice what He says next. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not encouraging people to sin, but He is uh, relaying what is true for all of us who follow Jesus and what Dana Ortland says so well in the book, as a Christian, I'm probably more aware of my own brokenness and my sin, and I feel more of the horror of it than I did when I professed faith in Christ when I was 19, 50 years ago. But he, he says, but if anyone does sin, now what we all know is everybody here has sinned, maybe even already this morning, you're aware of something you did or said or wish you'd said or done, you're aware of that. Then we read here that um, if anyone does sin, and then that immediately raises the question, well, how would you define sin? If you think about sin, how would you define it? If we broke into small groups and just, that's the discussion for our group here this morning, how would you describe it? I love the way Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, defines it. He talks about it being a disordered love that we're loving the wrong things. And the order of the things that we love is out of sync because almost everybody in this room is here because you know that God loves you and you love God. But is that, that at the top of your list? Or have other things taken the place of what you love more than God? And the Bible says that's sin because when you let anything mean more to you than Jesus, our treasure, you're in trouble because you've said, I'm, I'm investing myself in this. This is what gives me life. I'm depending on this to save me. The easy one to pick up on since we want to pray for the parents um, this week uh, at the Thursday night prayer meeting, it's so easy as a parent to get bound up and wound up in your children and their success or failures. And if they're doing great, you're doing great. If they're not doing great, you're not doing great. And what happens is, is we begin to put as the object of who we are and what we have, our faith in our performance or other people's performance. And so sin is about a disordered love. Um, there's a great book by James, I think it's Smith, and I'll put it in the reader this week. Uh, we are what we love. So, you know, I love food. Uh, you could probably tell. I love to eat, you know? And, I, and I'm joking a little bit, but I remember working with a woman who really struggled with food disorders. And she gave me a book because she wanted me to understand how severe her struggle was with her struggle with food. And um, the title of the book is When Food is Comfort. And it's a secular book, but it was all about how people get addicted to food which in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing. And this is how addictions work, is that when you say, I have to have this, that's what you're, already, you're always thinking. So if my most important thing in my day is 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and some snacks in between, I'm thinking about what I want to eat. What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? What am I going to have for a snack? And all of a sudden, it begins to be the most important thing about my day. Now, it's somewhat simple, but it's real. Are there things that are consuming your imagination and your thinking that are more important to you than Jesus? Uh, sin is putting anything in the place that is help for Jesus and Jesus only. Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Or where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So sin is putting anything other than Jesus at the center of your world. But it also means to fall short. Literally the word in the Greek, to sin, means to miss the mark or to fall short. So if we had a little archery contest and we're shooting arrows and Nathan, um, you know, pulls his bow back and he misses the target altogether, I could say, Nathan, you sinned. <laughs> you missed the target, you know. Uh, you said in the Greek, that's what, that's what it means, you missed the market. But all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark because God's target, his perfection, can only be accomplished by one person, and that's Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But when you think about your life and what's going on right now, when John says, if any of you sins, and it's usually not just individual sin, it's a pattern of sin. So again, this is an easy one to talk about. It's not controversial, but for some of you, it's real. Some people really struggle living in the approval of others. They live to please other people, and that seems to be a great value, but you live and die about whether you get the approval of other people. And uh, that's what rules your life. You live to please other people so they might notice you or be pleased with you or whatever. And you miss that just foundational concept that Jesus is pleased with us. And we don't have to make a good thing an ultimate thing. So, you know, we need an advocate. And that's where John goes in this. And this is where it really gets exciting. John says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, what, is the, what does it mean that he's an advocate? It means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in concert to speak to us about their relationship with us, where they have secured for us a future and a hope and a present reality that will not let us go. I think I've told some of you how much I love Christmas. I've already started thinking about it. And um, it looks like I'll probably be with you for Christmas, so look out. Uh, but uh, I, I love Christmas. A lot of great Christmas ministry uh, memories as a pastor. So let me give you two real quick. Um, uh, a couple years ago, we were having at the church where I was the pastor in North Carolina, our big Christmas pageant with all the kids, build a pageant, and everybody shows up. And so I'm sitting in the front row with all my family. I'm sitting next to my daughter, Claire, her husband, Nathaniel. And so the kids were doing this beautiful Christmas song, and all the parents, grandparents, neighbors, friends are there. The, the, the sanctuary is packed uh, with all these people. And there's this young boy who had trained, prepped. It turns out his grandmother is our worship leader at our church. But man, he knew his lines. He was singing his lines. He had all his hand signals like this. And he was, it was just like the light of heaven was shining on him. And it was so beautiful. Uh, last night I went to a Red Sox game and I heard this 12-year-old girl sing the Star Spangled Banner. 
and it was unbelievable. This girl from Allentown, Pennsylvania, you talk about a set of pipes. It was like, oh my goodness. Well, here's this little guy, and he is doing the performance of his life. And after it was over, you know, people applied applause, and, and then it got really quiet because it was, it was amazing. And this little boy, he's probably seven, walking down from the stage, and everything's quiet. He goes, nailed it, <laughs> like that, you know. And then the whole congregation just erupts in praise, you know. And, uh, you know, we've talked about that a lot in the church that I came from about. This little kid was just, like, so excited about how well he did. Well, over here to my left is my son-in-law, Nathaniel, who's a big kid. And just watching this kid, he's just weeping because it's so beautiful, you know. I mean, the way this kid is into it, it reminded him a lot of himself. But he's, Nathaniel's over here sobbing uh, next to me. So it was just one of those moments, Christmas memories that I have. But let's go to another Christmas where the kids are doing the play. And all of you have had this experience if you've had kids or you've watched Christmas stuff happen where... The kids are really into it. They're singing. They're doing their little steps. They're doing their hand signals. But this one little boy is just staring around. It's obviously he doesn't know the lines. He's not paying attention. He doesn't know why he's up there. And it, it's just, it just really stands out that he's like, you know, why did the parents help this kid? He's not ready. This is awkward. He felt bad for the little boy. And so sure enough, the little boy's up there. He starts picking his nose. And it's just, I can keep going, it gets worse. <laughs> it's just painful, you know? And so, so then it's over, and all the children are, are, are going out, and this little boy's just standing up there like, he's looking around like, what am I supposed to do? And his father, who's about halfway back, stands up and looks at his son and goes, that's my boy! Like <laughs> that. And it was so powerful because the little kid, you know, he just smiled like, this dad says, that's my son. That's my son. See, that's what advocacy looks like. It's Jesus looking at you and going, you're my girl. <laughs> I love you. I am so pleased with you. I delight in you. I'm singing to you. You're my boy. That's what Jesus does. He makes the intensity of his advocacy real and that he feels what we feel and he wants us to feel his love for us. And Jesus being the advocate that he is, and why there we need to know this, is that not only are we going to remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel here, but the idea of an advocate is a helper, a counselor, a comforter, a companion, a friend. Jesus has come to rescue us from ourselves. We cannot be our own advocate. He constantly re-invites us into his story by saying, take my yoke. Now the idea is, the yoke is a work instrument, it's a life instrument, where Jesus is on one yoke and we're next to him. But he has designed that yoke for each of us so that as we are living our lives, he's talking to us, he's speaking to us. This is how you know you have an advocate. You hear Jesus speaking to you. It's real. It's not imaginary, you know, mumbo jumbo, psycho babble. But he'll take primarily scripture and speak to you about his desires for you, his affections for you. Um, uh, there's lots of stories I could tell, uh, but uh, you know, just to have that sense in the moment where not only do you hear Jesus, now here's where you can know that this 
concept of his advocacy really means something to you? Have you ever been in a work project or doing something with a group of people and you start singing together as you're doing the work? To be in a relationship with Jesus where he's your advocacy, you will hear him, Zephaniah 3, go check it out later, 14. He's singing over you, he's singing to you. Wow. Uh, my mentor, uh, who was so powerful in Rick Downs my life, in my life, his wife, uh, Rosemary, when they were early on married, Rosemary was a doer. She was a can-do uh, kind of person, but she just lived under such a pressure because she wasn't doing enough. She was living in her own story of trying to please God through her effort. She was working so hard and just felt so discouraged all the time. And yet she could articulate the gospel to you with the best of them. She knew it, and she knew it well. But Jack's, they're walking around the lake, and he said to uh, Rosemary, he said, Rosemary, I know you know the words, the truth of the gospel, but you don't hear its music. Now, again, I want to invite you, if you've never made the connection here, and I'm not saying this to shame you, I want to invite you, as Jesus would invite you even now, I'm echoing him to say, come unto me, come to me. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're discouraged, if you're defeated, let me sing over you and let me sing to you. It says in Zephaniah 3, when you hear the music of Jesus singing, it quiets you. All that anxiety, all that noisy conscience, why did you do this? You should have done that. All this regret, all this bitterness, he washes us away with his voice. So if you heard the voice of your Savior, not only speaking to you about your mind, but singing to you the great truths of the gospel. And again, if you want to kind of tap into it, just go put on Handel's Messiah today and listen to it. And let Jesus meet you in that beautiful music. And that's why we sing. Christianity is a faith that sings. We sing these songs in Christ alone so that we might hear Jesus uh, speaking to us. Again, uh, what voices are we listening to? Uh, are there other voices that are louder for you than the voice of your Savior? Uh, some of you have seen the movie Jaws, and if you haven't, you haven't missed anything. But there's a, uh, there's a great uh, scene in the movie where uh, the, the town uh, sheriff, policeman, goes out on the boat with the guy who wants to catch the big great white shark somewhere off the Cape, somewhere near here. Uh, and, uh, and so the boat captain is fussing at him. He's throwing chum in the water to attract the great white shark. Uh, and if you've seen the movie, you know the scene, and you could actually go Google the movie clip of it. It's really good. So anyway, um, so the police chief is throwing the chum in, and all of a sudden the big white shark comes right up to the boat and sticks his head out of the water. And the police chief is so stunned by the size of the shark, he stumbles into the place where um, uh, the captain is, and he says, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> You're going to need a bigger boat. Some of you are feeling very overwhelmed by what's coming at you right now, where life is. And you're trying to be your own advocate. You're looking to other people to advise you and encourage you and help you. But you need the advocacy of Jesus reminding you of who you are and whose you are and what he's promised to do for you. 
Um, a good friend of mine who is a physics professor at a major university, he went to MIT, went to UCAL Berkeley, brilliant teacher, won all these teaching awards in physics. And he's a strong follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus. I mean, I, I have yet to hear anybody articulate so much of the truth about science and faith that syncs up like this, like my friend. But he says, you know, where I get in trouble, and he shares this with men, he says, I start to think that I have to be my own advocate. I have to, I have to argue for myself. I need to make the case for myself. And the way he illustrates it, he says, pretend like this is my universe, and I put myself in the center of my universe, and I'm trying to hold it together by being a really good dad, a good husband, a good professor. I'm trying to do all this stuff, and there are all these things that are orbiting around me because I am allowing myself to be put in the role where I've got to hold it together. I've got to keep it together. I've got to make it work. And he says that inevitably, here's what happens. Things go out of orbit. My marriage starts to fall apart. My kids start to fall apart, whatever. But he says, you know, when I put Jesus in the center of my world and let him be the Lord God Almighty, then, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, all of a sudden my world starts to harmonize and things start to happen. And this is what Jesus is saying, take my yoke. Many of you are carrying some very painful burdens, but Jesus says, take my yoke, work with me. Watch how I'm going to work for you and with you for the very need that brought you here this morning. Jesus wants to help you so much. But he can't do it if you're saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. Thank you very much. I'll be my own advocate for what really matters. My friend, you need a bigger advocate than yourself. <laughs> you don't have to advocate for yourself. Let Jesus be your advocate who reminds you who you are, who he is, what he's doing, and how he's gifted to you and prepared you to do good works that would stagger your imagination if you will but let him be your savior again today, to be your advocate. Um, and so it brings us to the, you know, the acronym of GOAT. Uh, so, um, lamb, let's just use lamb. Lord Almighty, majestic, beautiful. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away all our sins, who's a propitiation, who's removed the wrath, the judgment that we deserve. We'll look at it that next week. But the Lamb, you see, in the kingdom of God, the greatest is the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which means he's the Lord. He's the Lord Almighty. He's majestic and he's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the beauty of the gospel, the hope of it. We pray now that you would, again, work in our hearts the things that will let us see our need and then be surprised with how you supply our needs so that we are just so freed up, Lord, to be the people you want us to be, Jesus. And we're thankful. Amen.